Good morning. As uh, Holly mentioned at the very beginning of our service, this church takes very seriously uh, the piece of our mission that has to do with children. And uh, we invest a lot of time and effort and hours and hours and hours of our time trying to help people here raise their kids to have a relationship with God and to have a faith that they carry on throughout from here into adulthood and for the rest of their lives. And so I just want to mention for a moment here our day camp that's going on. I believe we had about 35 kids here last week for that and about 20 or 25 volunteers. And I understand a crazy good time was had by all. So uh, that continues this week. And we, uh, we want to just take a moment and lift that up in prayer to God that he will continue to do what he does through, through whatever small effort we add, but primarily through his power as, uh, as he helps us in this sometimes difficult but very fulfilling job of raising kids. So pray with me if you would. Father, thank you so much for the children that you blessed this church with. We pray for all the kids, uh, the ones that are here for the camp, the ones that aren't, that they will know you, that they will become closer to you and that they will gradually build a faith that will carry them throughout their lives. We pray for the volunteers that are working at the camp, that you will um, guide them, that you'll give them patience when it's needed, uh, and that you will use them to model what it means to follow Christ. Father, I want to pray especially for the parents. Whether their kids are young or older, We pray, Father, that you bless them in doing the challenging work of helping young people become adults. Father, open our eyes, those of us whose kids are grown, to how we can help them in that. Father, live in their homes, work in their their hands and in their eyes to help their children become what you want them to be. Thank you, Father, that we can call you Father. We pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as many of you know, um, Jared typically takes uh, about a month off every year to think about what he's going to teach us over the following months. And so if you're visiting with us today, uh, we're glad you're here. If you're visiting for the first time, I feel like I need to apologize because you're not going to get to hear Jared. Um, Jared doesn't look at all like me. Um, He's thinner. Well, you saw him bouncing on the trampoline. Um, uh, He's younger. uh, He has hair. Who laughed? Um, And this is the thing you're going to notice about Jared when you see him speak. He typically wears black. And I was never really clear why that was. And finally, I asked him because every so often he will kind of change pace and he'll wear gray. I said, Jared, what's with the gray? And he said, well, I wear it to add some color to an otherwise dull and uninteresting life. Um, So that's Jared. Um, But if this is your first time here, we're glad that you're here. Come back, because you're going to get to hear Jared speak. I I figured out a few weeks ago during the Mother's Day lesson, I was sitting right over here. Jared's parents were here hearing him talk about Mother's Day. Mother's Day is a tough lesson to preach. It's tough in part because we've all heard Mother's Day preached every single year, and it's tough in part because some of us uh, have relationships with our moms that are, shall we say, complicated. Um, And Jared was up here, and he was talking about uh, 
preaching as a very young man and how his voice was squeaking when he spoke. And I'm watching Jared's mom and she's laughing. At some point she's crying. I mean, it was incredible. And it just kind of, it hit me. And I think I have known this on some level for a while. But that was the moment it hit me. I've heard a lot of sermons in my life. And I've heard a lot of preachers in my life. And at this point on any given Sunday, I would rather listen to Jared Robinson than any of them. And I don't know if you enjoy it as much as I do, but I feel profoundly blessed to come here every week and hear Jared speak. So I say that to say, I'm sorry you don't get that today if you're visiting with us. Um, We will struggle through, but uh, I hope you'll be able to be back with us. So in my, in my job over at ACU, I teach business strategy. And strategy is kind of the part of business, not where we focus on managing individual people, but where we focus on managing companies. And so a lot of what we do in there is trying to make plans for what's going to happen in the future. And we have a lot of terms that we use to describe that. We talk about forecasting or modeling or predicting. And at some point in that class, usually about three or four weeks in, I will finally for the first time, use the G word. And the G word is guessing. And I just tell them, we have all these models and all of these things, but ultimately when we try to predict the future, we're guessing. And they kind of look at me and it starts to sink in. And then I say to them, listen, predicting the future is actually very easy. And they go, okay, good. And then I say, but predicting the future correctly is hard. In fact, it's virtually impossible. If we didn't know this before, we definitely learned it over the last three or four years because there were some things that we thought we knew about business that COVID basically turned upside down and threw out the window. I'll give you an example. Um, For as long as anybody can remember, whenever the economy is a little bit iffy or people are unsure about the future, without fail, they take their money and they pull it in real close and they hold on to it. And so during a recession and when the economy is bad, typically sales of big ticket items like houses and cars and boats go way down. And four years ago, if you'd said to me, what if there was a global pandemic that people all over the world were getting and there was really no way to cure it? What's going to happen to sales of big ticket items? I would have said they're going to just stop. Things like boats. 2020, highest level of boat sales in 15 years. 2021, higher than 2020. We could never have predicted how quickly things would change during COVID. For example, um, we could never have predicted how quickly Zoom would have become kind of the go-to app. So think back to those horrible days when you were stuck at your house and someone says, hey, we're going to use Zoom. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of went through four stages with Zoom. Stage one, what is Zoom? Okay, never heard of it but we start using it. Stage two, um, Zoom is helpful. In other words, I'm stuck at the house and I can thankfully at least do some work, not much, and talk to other people who are also stuck at their houses. Stage three, um, Zoom is fun. I mean, there are things about Zoom that were kind of fun. You can, you can change the background. And I'm thinking, you know, if that constitutes fun for you, you're having a rough week. But at some point, we were looking for something that was fun during Zoom. And stage four, which is where many of us are right now, stage four goes something like this. I had eight Zoom meetings today. Three words, I hate Zoom. Am I the only one? 
that's there, deliver me from Zoom. So we could never have predicted how quickly we would start using it, how quickly it would take over our lives, and then of course how quickly we would say, please take me away from all of this. And so I say all of this to say predicting the future is foolish. But I'm going to try today to talk to you about the future. And I do that based primarily on what we see looking at the past. And I want to talk to you about what I believe is the greatest threat facing the church, particularly in America today. Now, historically in the church, we have had a lot of things we were afraid of. So you go back to the 1950s, and there's this big concern about godless communism. It's going to take over the world. They're going to shut down Christianity. We know how that played out. Um, up into the 70s, there were real concerns about college students going off to uh, the university, and the godless university is going to take their faith away from them. For the most part, that was not really happening, but that was a big fear. Um, in Churches of Christ, we had some things we were concerned about. Um, Baptists, Methodists, Pentecostals, Episcopalians, Catholics, and frankly, a couple of the Churches of Christ across town as well, right? We were pretty sure they were, they were the problem. They were the threat. And in retrospect, it turns out perhaps they probably weren't. Historically speaking, most of those things we have been worried about were just kind of blips in the radar. They were things we got been out of shape about. I don't know, maybe we were bored. We needed something to worry about. They really didn't turn out to be a very big deal. But I want to talk to you about real threats to the church. And we have to go back to Scripture to read about some of those. So in Hebrews chapter 11, it's this passage on faith. We love the passage. It's this honor roll of people who stood up and held their faith, even when times are hard. And then pretty far down the passage there, it kind of changes direction. But we usually jump away from the passage before that happens. So down there around verse 35, you find this phrase, there were others. And I want to talk to you for just a second about the others. And this is what it says about them. There were others who were tortured. They faced jeers and flogging and chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about wearing sheepskins and goatskins. They were destitute. They were persecuted. They were mistreated. They were living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were people facing real threats. I mean, it ranged from being absolutely poor and uncomfortable to literally being cut in two. Those are threats to the church. And those were external threats. There were things on the outside that people were worried about, and legitimately so, unlike most of the things that we have tended to worry about. But I want to talk to you today not about external threats, but about internal threats to the church. Because it's much easier for us to get bent out of shape and worked up about things on the outside and kind of ignore the things on the inside. And I think the greatest threat to the church today is an internal threat. Now, let's think about the church as it's gone through COVID. Um, again, we couldn't have predicted what would have happened, how it would have played out. Um, the thing that really impacted the church the most during COVID was not the fact that you actually had people dying from this virus. It was not the fact that we had to shut down our services. I mean, church kind of rolled on despite that. It was not any of these other things that we tend to think about, um, but the church made it through all of those things. 
In fact, I'm stunned because I look back at COVID and I say to myself, okay, what was the biggest thing that caused problems for the church during COVID? I mean, what was the number one factor that divided believers during COVID? And surprisingly, I think I know. I think it was this. I mean, am I wrong? The stories I heard, the things I heard believers say about other believers blow my mind. I mean, believers choosing sides over their masking doctrine. Shepherds of churches who had no choice but to make hard decisions. And whichever way they went, they were criticized. Ministers, if you don't know a church whose minister has finally said, I'm done with this and stepped out, trust me, they are there. If you had told me before COVID, if you had said, listen, Mark, this pandemic's going to happen, and I'd have been thinking about big things, and you'd have said, by the way, the thing that's going to cause the most trouble for the church is this little five-cent item. It's a piece of paper and some elastic straps. This is going to be the thing that divides believers. I would have said, you are crazy. You're nuts. The church is the body of Christ. It is more robust than that. It is more powerful than that. You cannot tell me the church is so fragile that this would divide it. And I'd have been wrong. Because it did. Of course, the mask was not really the problem. The mask was the symptom of the problem. But the problem runs far deeper than that. The problem is actually, as most of the problems in the church are, a problem with us. It's a problem with the hearts of believers. And the mask just kind of became the focal point for the discussion. And the problem is this, that when push comes to shove, many believers want their way more than they want unity in the body of Christ. Many believers want their way more then they want unity in the body of Christ. And when that is true, the church, for all of its God-given power, becomes surprisingly fragile. The church is weakened when we start to put things like this ahead of this body that we are so blessed to be a part of. Now, I'll give me some examples here from Scripture. Um, you've got the church in Corinth. The letters to the church in Corinth, man, it was a messed up church. And it was a mess. There's so much going wrong there. And Paul writes to them, and in one of the passages, he talks about the fact that they have gotten so far off track that they are actually going to court and suing each other. Right? Christians suing each other in public court because they want to get what they want to get. And he writes to them, and this is what he says. These court cases are a black eye on your community. Wouldn't it be far better to just take it? To let yourselves be wronged and forget it, all you're doing is providing fuel for more wrong, more injustice, bringing more hurt to the people of your own spiritual family. You see, Paul would say it's better to lose the disagreement than to damage the body. Paul would say nothing is as important as the health of the body of Christ. Now, I understand that the mask thing became politicized. Seems at this point like everything in our lives has become politicized. 
And I don't want to talk about politics except to say this. Historically, when Christianity has tried to use politics to get what it wants, it has usually ended badly for Christianity. You go back and study the Roman Empire, you cannot even count the number of atrocities that came about because the church married up with the Roman Empire. There's a great picture you can find online. It's Vladimir Putin. He's talking to the head of the Russian Orthodox Church before the invasion, where the head of the church there gives his blessing for Putin to invade, take over Ukraine. Notice what's happened there. When the church marries up with someone like Putin, at this point, the name of Jesus Christ is tied to every atrocity, every war crime, every rape. That's what happens. And there's a fundamental problem here, and I don't think we can ignore politics. Don't hear me saying that. But there's this fundamental disconnect between politics and between Christianity, and it's this. Politics at its core is about power. It's about power. Political systems are designed to gather power and use power to accomplish things and ultimately to hang on to power at any cost. That's what political systems do. Now, over here on the far side of the equation, you have this thing that we're a part of. We call it Christianity. And it was started by this guy. He was, uh, he was kind of a radical. He was kind of a visionary. Um, and he, oddly enough, had all power. He didn't need to get power. He had power. And think about how he used it in his life. He basically gave it away. He used it to help people who had no other way to get anything done. At some point, the political forces became so frustrated with him, they came to him and tried to force him to become their king, to force him into politics. And he just walked away. Amazingly, at the end, he was faced with a choice because he knew they were coming to take away his very life. And he did not even use his power to prevent that. This is why it is so hard for us to partner with politics in the stuff we're trying to accomplish. Because politics is about getting power. Christianity is about using power for the good of others. So let's talk a little bit about how to fight like a Christian. This is what we know from Scripture. Early Christians disagreed. And sometimes they fought. I suspect if we could see how they actually lived and not just what we read in Scripture, the whole story, they probably fought a lot because they were trying to work this thing out kind of like we are. Examples of this. Paul, we said in 1 Corinthians, he's writing to the church in Corinth. Later in Galatians, Paul is not the apostle correcting the members. He's the apostle correcting another leader in the church. Paul and Peter at odds over how things should be done. The saddest story of all, perhaps, you have this story where the apostles are standing around talking and they're debating, they're arguing who's going to be in charge of the church as it grows. And they're unhappy because some of them want to be in charge and the others don't want them to be in charge. And to me, the saddest part of all, Jesus is there, he's there. It's like, it's like the grandkids standing around arguing over who's going to get grandma's fine china before she's dead. And they're arguing already about who's going to have the power in the kingdom. This is kind of 
similar to what happens today. And so let me give you just some basic ideas here to keep in mind about how we can hopefully disagree without being disagreeable because we're going to disagree. Number one, ask yourself, does this issue really matter? This is a tough one because of course, if I think it's important, I think it matters. My guess is those people in Corinth that were suing each other, they thought it mattered. Otherwise, they wouldn't sue each other. Paul says, it's better to lose. It's better to be taken advantage of. You see, God asks you to do exactly what he did for you. He asks you to accept someone who is not exactly what you want them to be. He asks you to accept someone who is not perfect. That's what God calls us to do in the kingdom. We accept one another, and we have some issues that we just let them go. Now, just in case you're not thinking through this, I promise you there are things that you and I disagree on. I promise you there are things that you disagree on with most of the people sitting on your row. That's life. And the question becomes, how big a deal is this issue to us? You've got to decide, does this really matter? I like the minister who put it this way. For any issue, if God isn't biting his nails over this issue, we shouldn't be either. I mean, there's a time just to let it go. And church will be a, a nicer place to be if we would learn to let some things go. Number two, you need to handle it face-to-face with the person involved. And there are two parts of this. The second part is you handle it with the person who's involved. You don't go online and talk about the person who's involved. Not that any of us would ever do this, right? Of all the, of all the things I think social media encourages us to do, it's this. It's to go in and talk about people rather than talking to those people. In my experience, there are, dis- there are discussions that must be had face-to-face. They should not be had by email. They should not be had by text or TikTok or whatever the latest of these wonderful tools is. And I would suggest to you that most of the discussions that actually matter must be had face-to-face for many reasons, including the fact that when you and I sit down face-to-face, we treat each other better than we do when we text. When you and I are face-to-face, we are nicer than we would be when we text. I understand text. I love texting. It's simple. It saves me from so many meetings. But there is a time to sit down with the person you disagree with and talk. And if you find that it's not worth it to you to sit down with them and talk, then refer back to number one and just let it go. Third, you need to assume the best about all the people that are involved. I get so frustrated that sometimes I have to actually talk to someone I'm upset with because frequently when I talk to them, I find out all the things I was assuming about how evil and wicked and horrible they are turn out to not be true. And I can't stay mad at them anymore. Some of us are better than this. Some of you are better than this at this than I am. You actually assume the best about people, 
I tend to assume the worst. I tend to assume their motives are bad. I tend to assume they're making bad choices. I tend to assume all kinds of things about them that are not necessarily positive. And time after time after time, when I actually talk to them, I find out, oh, they're not so bad. I think it was Mark Twain who said, most people improve markedly upon their actual acquaintance. Assume the best, because you might be wrong if you don't. Number four, remember that we are all still working out our faith. This is the term from Philippians 2. Um, It talks about working out your faith with fear and trembling. I grew up believing that that meant you need to understand the plan of salvation. You need to understand the steps that are involved to become a member of the body of Christ and to be saved. I came to that understanding when I was less than 10 years old. And at that point, I took the steps to be saved, as I understood it at that time. And I've now had about a half a century to go beyond that. And it turns out the way I understood it back then was not entirely complete. That as I go through stages of life and face new questions, I'm continually forced to work out my salvation, to think about how is this supposed to be? How do I live this out as a follower of Christ? You need to assume that the people sitting next to you and the people across the auditorium are also still working out their faith the same way you are. And if I give you room to work out your faith, there are going to be some things that I'm not going to get bent out of shape about. We are all still working this out. We do not ever have it nailed. We do not ever have it fully situated. Passage in 2 Samuel, it's one of the ones that gives me great, great hope when I think about God and how he deals with us. It says this, God does not just sweep life away. Instead, he devises ways to bring us back when we have been separated from him. He devises ways to bring us back when we've been separated from him. This is a God who looks for ways to be in relationship with you. When you have wandered off, God is sitting there trying to find a way to get you back. When you have totally blown up your life, God is looking for a way to get you back in relationship with him. That is how we need to think of each other. We're all working it out as we go. Just like we did during COVID, same thing in our lives. We're trying to figure this thing out as we go. Number five, consciously, repeatedly choose the body of Christ over everything else. Preferences, opinions, politics, whatever it is that potentially divides you with the people sitting around you right now, You need to consciously choose the body of Christ. It means you need to give them some room to be different from you on the things that don't matter. It means you give them space to work out their faith as they grow. And you're going to have to make this decision over and over and over because new things are going to come up. You need to choose the body and its health over any other issue. Because at the end of the day, it's the only thing that is really eternal. It's the only thing that is really, truly going to matter. 
I'm not saying don't have opinions, and I'm not saying don't have strong opinions, but I'm saying ultimately this has got to be what wins out. So what's the bottom line here? Royce Money was president of ACU for many years, and he told a story about visiting the nation of Turkey. Now, if you don't know anything about Turkey, um, I can tell you that if you walk down the street in Turkey and you pass 100 people, 99 of them will be Muslim. On some streets, it will be 100 of them. And he and his wife were visiting Turkey, and while they were there, they were, they were given a chance to go to worship. And so they went to a gathering of Christians in this Muslim nation. And he described what happened when they got there. The first thing he noticed when they walked up to the door was there were men standing at the door with guns. Which is, you know, kind of a different start to church. And then they walked in and there was a metal detector. And they had to walk through the metal detector before they could get inside. And as part of that, they took his wife's purse. And they opened it up. And they searched it. And only when all that was done did they get to walk down this tunnel into the room where the rest of the believers were waiting. And Royce's observation was this. In that room, nobody asked you, what is your denomination? Are you Baptists? Are you Methodists? He said in that room, nobody cared. They were just thankful that you were there and you were one of the very few people in that country comfortable saying this, Jesus is Lord. He said in that church, nothing else mattered. Because you were literally making a decision that could damage your business, it could, it could potentially endanger your life to follow Christ. I think they understood in the church there what matters most. Now, to wrap up, I'd like you to, to do me a favor. I'd like you to close your eyes for just a moment. And I'd like you to picture in your mind the person that you think of at church, here, or wherever it is you go, that you dislike the most, or the person that annoys you. It doesn't even have to be a big thing. You may not like the way they dress. You may not like the way they laugh. Whatever it is, somebody at church that gets on your nerves, that on a part of you you're thinking it would actually be better if they weren't there. Hopefully you're not all picturing me. And I'd like you to think through what it is about that person that troubles you. And I'd like you to ask yourself, is this something that God is biting his nails over? And if it is, you need to talk to the person face to face about it. But for most of us, I'm guessing it's not. And I'd like you to decide at this point, which is more important to you? Being unhappy with that person or maintaining unity in the body of Christ? And I'm going to ask you to decide right now to put the body ahead of whatever else is going on in your mind with that person. And the reason I'm asking you to do that is very simple. That's what God does for you. He puts unity with you 
so high on the list that he gave up his own son so he could have it. Father, I don't know how you are so patient with us because it seems like every time we turn around, we find a new way to be at odds with each other. Help us to see each other as you see us. Forgive us when we put anything ahead of your body and its health and its unity. And Father, thank you. Thank you that you continually look for ways to bring us back to you. Because without you, Father, we have no hope. We pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who showed us how to do it. Amen.